Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you don't have to be a rebel to be an innovator, right? I mean, in essence, we can we can talk uh, for hours about what it takes to be an innovator. What I would say is just enabling that childlike curiosity. And you just don't have, if you're not afraid, you're already innovating, right? Um, and and I think that's uh, that's the key. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Suheretsky. And today I'm joined by Alex Goryachev, who is joining me from San Diego, California. Good morning to you, Alex. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm so happy that you have accepted the, the invitation to join. We're going to be discussing your book, Fearless Innovation, a no-nonsense guide. Um, and just before we start uh, tackling the different messages of your book and your vast experience in the field, let me just introduce you briefly to the listeners. So Alex is, as I mentioned, the author of Fearless Innovation. He's also an award-winning Silicon Valley veteran. And I couldn't help but get very excited when I was reading your CV, Alex, and I understood that you started as a hacker uh, in your teenage years and that uh, you had some stints at Napster and Liquid Audio early in your career. And I think that's a bit of a test of the demographics of our audience to know who, who knows what Napster is and who remembers those good old times. Um, you also advanced digitization in other sectors, consulting with IBM and Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, among others. And today you are the managing director of co-innovation centers and innovation strategy at Cisco. And in this function, you oversee innovation programs for all the employees. You're also a fellow Forbes contributor. And what I definitely appreciated reading is that you're more and more looking at uh, understanding how you can use your skills and your experience to support NGOs, governments, and other stakeholders to use innovation to achieve meaningful impact, for example, through achieving the Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations. So it's my great pleasure having you, Alex. Um, before we start talking about the book and the key messages, just maybe tell listeners about you know, your work and, and what is it that gets you up in the morning, and also what made you write the book Fearless Innovation. Yeah. First of all, thank you. Thank you for for having me. When I when I think about what gets me up in the morning, right? It's all about. Um, I want to say streamlining chaos, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, whenever we are in in um, in the world today or in a large company, there's a lot of chaos, right? There's a lot of clutter, and I think that um, what I really enjoy is um, is kind of is solving problems or when problems are unsolvable, managing them uh, to the best of our abilities. So that's that's what I'm excited about, right? Um, every day presents new complexities and, and solving them is a, is a great challenge. So how did you go from 
being a hands-on practical manager in the Silicon Valley world and the IT sector to then saying, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and write this book. What was it that you felt you wanted to tell the readers? Um, you know, what I, I, the way I got into this is I was doing a lot of blogging on the kind of the future, not necessarily about the technology, uh, but, uh, but really about the societal changes and the innovation in a, in a non-tech way. And I really enjoyed talking to um, talking to the audiences about uh, again about how it, how technology can be used to solve problems. And uh, what I've noticed is uh, there's certainly um, a lot of kind of preference for technology, and people get enamored with it uh, without really thinking what is it that we're going to use it for. I mean, mm -hmm. the, I hear all about artificial intelligence and machine learning and yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, it's all about solving problems. So what I really wanted to do is kind of write about innovation in a very plain way with as little technology as possible. I think that the book has really captured that because... You know, picking a book, a book about innovation, as you say also, and you write in the intro that innovation is almost the most overused words <laughs> in the world today and almost lost its meaning so much it has been used. Um, and, and somehow our mind immediately goes to, oh, there surely is an app for that or, or, or surely there's an AI. But your, your book is really... Um, about this enabling environment and, and um, you know, what are the, the levers that organizations and leaders can pull, right, to, to foster innovation without it being just focused on tech? Yeah, yeah, and if you think about, look, um, I, I know that um, we're kind of all watching the news and, um, and looking at what's happening in the world, uh, but I bet you, I mean, none of us could predict that... Um, when we looked at when we celebrated 2020, that a quarter forward, the world would be disrupted. And if we were to talk and say, "Hey, the world will be disrupted," I, I bet that most of the people, kind of in the innovation large corporate space, would talk about primarily technology, right? How technology is disrupting the world. But it, we right now, uh, painfully, we know that that is not the case. However, we can use technology to make the world better. And, and these are not the empty words. It actually means something for all of us today. I was very intrigued by the title, and I think it couldn't be more, uh, more relevant now than ever. It, you write about fearless innovation. Have you had experiences where innovation was hampered by fear? Or why, why did you want to make this association of words? You know, I mean, because if I think about it, right, I'm writing this book primarily for kind of medium and large size enterprises. And if I think about, I know there's a lot that's said about startups or um, in large organizations, but I think when all of us are born and we kind of go into this world, uh, much like startups, right, uh, we are fearless. I look at my five-year-old son, Matthew, or five and a half now, and he's so fearless. He's so open. He's so creative. Everything is possible for him, right? Mm. And my goal as a parent is just to make sure that he, that I help him 
remained this fearless innovator throughout his life, or as much as I can influence this. And if I think at the, if I look at the organizations, right, uh, be that a small organizations or large organizations, I, I think there most of them are born fearless, right? They're born out of new ideas and values, and people get together and they really, they really push that forward. Be that a small startup or United Nations, and then over time something happens, right? And um, the organizations um, and people, right, that are in this organizations, I think we are less open. And I wonder why. And and I think there's a lot of that has to do with fear. And it's our inability to perceive new information or being afraid of losing things. So that's, uh, um, that's how the title came about. What do you think about that? Do you kind of do you do you sense uh, a feeling of fear sometimes as the organizations mature? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I actually created when I when we started the work life hub, um, mm. and and started going on you know some startup events or events around new companies. There were a lot of men always, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to create a forum for women who set up their own companies and I created this meetup group and I called it the fearless female founders mm-hmm. because uh, I, I realized that I probably became an entrepreneur because I had a very high tolerance for risk mm-hmm. um, and so I, I, I definitely can you know your I think the title of the book and your the messages in your book really resonate with me because uh, having also children myself, I know that uh, over time we become so aware of what others think of us and judgment and what we're getting wrong or, you know, not conforming. And innovation is always a little bit sticking out, right? And we want to make sure that we we, we conform, that we you know, are aligned to society, that we we do what is expected of us. And somehow it's maybe counterintuitive, right, to be a, a, an employee that is well-respected, that is well-conforming to the organizational norms, but then being an innovator as well, which counterintuitively or not is what would drive actually the organization forward. So I think it's a very intriguing title and it raised a lot of associations and soul searching i think while reading the book yeah thank you and and you know the uh, you're you're so right because i mean at the end of the day you don't have to be a rebel to be an innovator right i mean in essence we can we can talk uh for hours about what it takes to be an innovator what i would say is just enabling that kind of like curiosity and you just don't have if you're not afraid you're already innovating right um, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the key. And then in that title, I talk about kind of the top line and the bottom line. And, um, I just want to point, make a, an important distinction that often when people talk about innovation, it's all about creating a new product, right? Or it's yes. about capturing a billion dollar idea. Uh, look, these are all wonderful things. Uh, the kind of the what I really want to just point out when I talk about uh, the bottom line of the title is innovation presents a lot of opportunities to just do things faster and cheaper and better, and that does not have to be a billion dollar idea. But when you go into a mid sized to large sized company, when you um, do things better, 
uh, and more efficient, you can actually save billions of dollars, which is which is a valid business case as well. You know, that's so true. And, and when I was starting actually this uh, fearless females, uh, female fe- fearless female founders group, and on one of our meetups, we had a lot of employees who were not entrepreneurs, but just wanted to do something, wanted to contribute, maybe through an NGO, maybe through a project. And I remember so clearly there was one uh, woman, she was working in a photocopy paper company. Mm -hmm. And she said that um, the company has developed a way to package, you know, these A4 stacks of paper that we're all Mm -hmm. grappling with next Mm -hmm. to the printer. And, and that company managed to package it in a way that uh, made it opening this uh, packet of paper much easier in a way that not all the papers fell to the floor and you could easily take it out without uh, crinkling the paper. And I thought, wow, you know, and she said that not even all the employees in the company understand the innovation potential of this tiny adjustment, basically. Because it's not sexy, it's not you know huge, but it. She said in the paper industry, this this hasn't been seen in a while. Um, as a person who um, who often gets the paper cuts from just opening the the pack of five hundred pages, right? And I could never open it straight. It's always kind of uh, somewhere in the middle, and I and I get a, a paper cut. First of all, I think it's a wonderful innovation. I'll, I'll certainly, I can't wait for it to be uh, to be in the store near me. Um, and but you're pointing to something when you talk about people are saying that innovation often needs to be disruptive. You know, I'd say no. I mean, <laughs> not always. Not getting a paper cut is for me is disruptive enough. Right? I'd be I'd be very happy. Uh, but the other thing is, I wonder how many people in that particular company that you're talking about actually tried to open a pack of paper. <laughs> and we often see that in in many organizations, people execute on silos and they do not necessarily understand the company, you know, customer experience. And I know that's a very overused term, but they have not really talked to their colleagues in different departments to figure out what problems they're having, right? And I think... One of the things that I try to talk about in the book, which I think is essential to to our workplaces, is how do we stay connected with each other and how do we break silos and execute cross-functionally? Because let's admit it, when, when, when innovation happens, it happens because people from different backgrounds with different ideas come to the table. And, they, and then they talk fearlessly and they can be open and vulnerable with each other. I love this. And, you know, on the Work Life Hub podcast, we speak a lot about what employers can do and, you know, what is an enabling environment for gender equality, an enabling environment for people to bring their whole selves to work. And I was so happy to see uh, this subchapter on on diversity and inclusion in your book uh, that you make the link to innovation. Could you elaborate a little bit on on how do you see these links between innovation and diversity and and what are maybe some of the key pointers that that you researched? Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, maybe 
when we think about innovation, right, it's something that the lonely innovator is a myth, right? Innovation takes two. I, I, I wouldn't argue that invention can take one. I mean, certainly um, a lonely warrior or a person can go and invent a lot of things. Commercializing and putting it to use and actually leveraging to solve problems would always require a team, right? So first of all, it's it's about people that are working together, right? And and I think when you work work together with with others, um, the teamwork is essential. And the reason is is we is very simple. We don't know everything. And and I, I what I really want to say is that innovation is about inclusion and diversity. It's about teamwork. It's about getting together with other people and it's getting to know your customers and it's getting to know your ecosystem um, because at the end of the day we we live in the age of co-innovation and nobody can solve the problem alone so it takes people with different backgrounds with different points of view with different experiences uh, to come up with answers and to help make those answers a reality Absolutely. And, you know, when you said we don't know everything, I I often use the phrase, we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> and that's why we need a team and we need honesty and we need fearlessness to tell each other what the other doesn't know. And that will, you know, I think move a little bit the needle always forward. Uh, yes, and I, and I and you see, you've, you've talked about fearlessness. I think that's very important to just admit saying I don't know, right? Um, when in fact I, I go back to myself, Matthew, I didn't realize how many things I don't know until Matthew <laughs> started asking uh, questions, why, right? I mean, generally, like why I I don't know, right? And then I realized that here I am, right, um, somewhat middle aged, and I don't know. I don't know a lot of things, and I think it, uh, a path to solutions begin begin with uh, with honesty and not being afraid to admit certain things. Yes, and and perhaps that also, uh, without wanting to overanalyze the the situation here, but you know the male leader, the omnipotent male leadership, the leader who knows everything similar to the father figure who who knows everything i can see that now with younger dads and and new dads in my in my network but also young leaders young startup leaders who who as you say are okay admitting i don't know and you know saying that's why i have a team that's why i hired these people because it's not my job to know everything and tell everything, but it's me for me to remove uh, the obstacles that stand in the way of my staff or my colleagues to to achieve the, the to their best of to achieve to the best of their ability and and then to create uh, the good experience for for clients and customers. Um, absolutely. And when you talk about achieving to the best of their ability, our abilities change for the better when we work with others, right? Because more, more information comes in. So when you, when you talk about that kind of the I know everything answer, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't leave a lot of space for, uh, for, um, 
or imagination, right? I mean, even um, I don't. There, there could be multiple truths to the same answer. I mean, right now it's if I look at the clock, right now it's seven forty-five a.m. in California, in San Diego. I bet it's different time at where you are, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always there's always a different point of view. And. Uh, you also make very important points in the book uh, in a dedicated chapter about leadership, the role of leaders. According to your experience, uh, what are today's leaders still getting wrong about fostering innovation? What are these common mistakes that you see and you think, oh, I wish you would read my book? <laughs> um, you know, I think... Um, what- in the, in the context of innovation, right, and in the context of employee engagement, I think what I often see uh, that kind of breaks my heart is when the leaders are so passionate about in the innovation and they say, let's go and innovate and, and shoot for the moon and whatever, come up with a billion-dollar idea. Uh, but they give zero guidance in terms of what their priorities are. So I think I use this term pragmatic innovation um, and I, I think it's essential that uh, in a large enterprise, uh, people execute towards the goal. And um, it's essential for leaders to know what their goals are and where, where they want people to be innovative or what problems they want to be solving, right? And I, and I think that's essential for leaders to, to adopt that point of view, right? It's very important that there is a culture of creativity and openness and whatever that culture that you want to build in the workplace. And it's essential that it's leveraged for, uh, for, for, for some kind of a purpose. And I often see uh, enablers of the culture. I often see desire to innovate, but sometimes I do not see a stated purpose. And I think the more granularly people can state that purpose as it relates to their department, uh, team, or a workplace or industry, the better their outcomes are. And how involved do leaders need to be in this process? Because what we see usually is that top top leadership would, you know, set uh, set the ball rolling uh, with a town hall meeting, declare, you know, the vision for the company for the next three years, but then kind of disappear out of view, right? And then we have this opposite uh, example with. Elon Musk uh, who and Mark Zuckerberg who sit there with the teams and, and are always present. But I appreciate that that's Silicon Valley. But how can other companies, other organizations get this kind of leadership balance right for the leader to be, you know, creating the vision, the, you know, the, the, the burning platform, but at the same time be approachable or be there and guiding as you said, employees through this pragmatic innovation <laughs> process. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a perfect answer to it because, I mean, we all want. Um, well, I would. I'm going to use the I statement, right? I, <laughs> I I I love having my leaders involved. I really like it. I like to know that they care, and I don't like when they're too involved, right? I think at work we all want we all we all want to stay connected to our leaders, and at the same time we have uh, we want to have autonomy to execute. 
And if I think about the, I was so lucky to work with um, with so many great leaders. If I think about kind of the way they were involved, is they they were able to set the vision, and they were able to let me go and execute and make my own mistakes. And they were always available for coaching. Right. So, again, it really depends on, on what industry you're in and the enterprise. But again, I, I think it's um, it's a, it's a really difficult uh, act and it's hard to get it perfect. I mean, what do you think? What's you've talked to a lot of people on your show. What do you think is the is the kind of the magic solution? Um, I, I think that's the most recurrent um, uh, answer to some of these questions were about. Uh, leaders listening and a little bit this idea of servant leadership um, not to as what we discussed before not to be this you know have all the answers uh, leader but but somebody who who is humble who is there to to listen to the to the employees who know best you know trusting them but I also think it takes a lot of transparency of decision making it takes a trusting environment and I really loved when you just said about these two very important pillars uh, of allowing people to make mistakes and coaching. I think these are essential qualities and essential cornerstones of of getting this balance right. Um, and and you, you've talked about the servant leadership, right? And I think, it, again, it begins with leaders understanding that actually they don't know everything. And uh, and the teams and the people that work for them are not the extensions of leaders, right? And it's and the leader needs to be of service to to the team, right? And I think that, and I think that's essential. Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, one of the episodes of the podcast is with the uh, is with Brady Pyle, the the HR director at NASA. And he was he he makes some very interesting points about NASA's previous approach to innovation, where they just didn't want to take any risks and couldn't ha- let any mistakes happen mm-hmm. because, of course, it would cost lives. Um, but that's of course an extreme work environment. But somehow, for leaders to build up a tolerance of mistakes, mm-hmm. almost as a trade-off, in terms of okay, it's going to be a bumpy road. Um, we're not going to ride there on the backs of unicorns, but it's worth as almost like an investment or a collateral for us to come out better at the other side. I think that could be a good good attitude. Yeah, and, and, um, and, I, and, I, and I understand that in many industries, we talked about NASA, uh, the stakes are high. Right, so it's a completely yes. You want to create that innovative environment, and at the same time, you have uh, people's lives are on the line, right? I mean, uh, do I want my uh, do I want the airline industry to be innovative? Yes, of course, uh, especially if that uh, in involves a faster check-in process, right? Um, I welcome that, but at the same time, I probably don't want them to be too innovative when it comes to flight safety. So how do you balance that? That's These are great questions. Hmm. You also have a, a number of really great case studies in the book. And one of my favorite is Lego. 
because especially via me, my nieces, my children, I observed this amazing transformation from just the red, blue, yellow bricks to now the universes created around Ninjago, etc. Um, but if smaller companies are reading the books, you're, you're reading your book, um, I was wondering what can they take away from the case studies, you know, not to have this reaction that, well, okay, Lego is one of a kind, they have the resources, I'm not Lego, I'm just making chocolates here in Belgium or, you know, <laughs> other companies. Because I think your book is, is really like a, a fantastic roadmap to creating this innovation, uh, uh, innovative innovation environment or or in the culture of innovation um but but how can you know they get something from these case studies that they can say okay i i can how can we empower them to say okay i i can learn from this and i can apply that as well um you know i would really encourage them i think they have the resources um and i they have everything and i want to say within them uh, because all they have to do is observe their children or grandchildren or neighbors' children go and and look at a lot of Lego bricks and then put them all together. And the combinations are endless. And when you look at when I look at my son, for example, I spent a weekend building different Lego sets with him, not following the instructions. And they came out to be beautiful, right? And and I really kind of, it's a very meditative process. Um, I was able to disconnect from news and everything else and just be there and be present and create something new. So it's all about opening up to the world of possibilities. Yes, well, you know, the, the Lego case study is really about the fact that they, they've diversified their business. And if you, I mean, and they kind of touch everything from, um, from movies to amusement parks and the way they license their brand uh, to different experiences. But it all ties back to one single premise, uh, which is everything is possible. And I think what they've exemplified in, in their corporate culture, that everything is possible, right? And, uh, and um, frankly speaking, it's no different than any other company. It's just that I think they, because of, by nature of the business they're in, they're able to unlock that childlike curiosity and being, being able to, to different opportunities. And when they get off track, as like I did, you know, some time ago, they're able to, uh, to go back home. I mean, think about it. It's a non-digital product at the end of the day, right? It's just, it's plastic. Yeah. And that plastic is magical. And it's all about what it makes possible. And what it makes possible is endless imagination. And that endless imagination translates into pragmatic results for that business. And what I want to say is endless imagination coupled with a structure and governance and um, metrics and other things provide the same results for the businesses. And, um, you know, many people would probably frown from me saying using the words creativity and imagination in the same sentence as uh, governance and metrics, and, <laughs> right? But and at the same time, we all work for we work in a, in a business environment, and or even when we work in nonprofits or cities or governments, we have people that we serve, 
So let's be honest. There are some metrics that we need to to meet, and uh, and we better meet them. So I think what I tried to explain in the book is how you can balance between the creativity and engagement, and at the same time, metrics and execution. Yes, I, I think that's really the essence of 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 your book and and the message. This um, somehow getting the balance of these two to right, absolutely. Now, before we move to the last question, uh, may I ask you, Alex, to tell listeners uh, where they can find out more about you, where they can find the book, where they can maybe get in touch with you? Um, sure, I would say either alexgorichev.com or LinkedIn. Great. So um, I encourage really everybody to, to go and check out Alex's website uh, because you can uh, have... You know, um, you, you can see the, all the work that he's done before, but also uh, learn more about Alex and also find out about the book, which I have read and, uh, and I really recommend uh, to everyone, even if they have read a number of other books on, on innovation, because you have really crystallized, I would say, somehow, uh, really crystallized the, the, the fundamentals uh, and it's, you know, as it says in the title, it's a no-nonsense guide. <clears throat> so, you know, going into the last last question that I wanted to ask you, um, if, if I could ask you one question, Alex, uh, one advice, uh, one advice that you could give to uh, senior leaders, CEOs out there um, that you think they should um, follow in terms of um, guiding their organizations towards more or more effective innovation processes. What, what would be your advice to, to these senior leaders? It's about communication. And um, we talked about the vision and we talked about the strategy. We talked about communicating with employees. I think many people, uh, myself included, we often forget that communication is a two-way street. And frankly speaking, it involves listening. And listening, which probably should be at least 50%. So when we think about the futures of our organizations or our cities or communities, um, it's about listening to our stakeholders. And um, I think in most of the cases, when we talk about cities and communities, we understand that our stakeholders are people who live there, right? Us. But somehow, when we when we think about our organizations, we often think about our stakeholders as you know, as shareholders and uh, and customers and and partners, and these are all very important. But at the end of the day, we're all employees, and as employees, we are the stakeholders. And we have an incredible knowledge base about uh, what's working, what's not. And I think it's essential for leaders to not only communicate clearly in terms of expressing what they think and setting a sense of direction, but asking questions and listening to their employees, trying to understand where they want to go, and listening to the ecosystem, I, I, I think that's the key. And it's about having transparency and being transparent with the stakeholders about uh, what's going on. 
I couldn't agree more. I think um, that's really uh, fantastic advice and I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast, Alex, to share uh, your expertise, your insight with the listeners. And I encourage really everyone to check out your book, uh, Fearless Innovation. And I just wish you really the best of success with the book and uh, all your other endeavors as well. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation.